This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America on this U.S. politics edition of the program. Because the soul of this nation is strong, because the backbone of this nation is strong, because the people of this nation are strong, the state of the union is strong. I'm not new to this place. I stand here tonight having served as long as about any one of you have ever served here. But I've never been more optimistic about our future, about the future of America. We just remember who we are. We're the United States of America, and there's nothing, nothing beyond our capacity if we do it together. That is how U.S. President Joe Biden concluded his feisty second State of the Union address to a joint session of Congress on February 7. His assessment that the State of the Union was strong was preceded by a litany of legislative achievements in his first two years in office, from the bipartisan infrastructure law, which is putting hundreds of thousands of people to work across America, to the Chips and Science Act which is also creating thousands of jobs in America, President Biden touted his administration's accomplishments in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic, which caused supply chain disruptions and contributed to rising inflation, which he is also tackling. The address was short on foreign policy, but Biden did call out China for its aggression and vowed in word and deed to invest heavily in research and the manufacturing of semiconductors embodied in the Chips and Science Act, to both outcompete China and protect advanced U.S. technology. As for Russian President Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine one year ago, the president said it was a, quote, murderous assault, evoking images of the death and destruction of Europe suffered in World War II. He rallied the transatlantic alliance, united NATO, and built a global coalition to stand against Putin's aggression to defend Ukraine and democracy writ large. President Biden reserved the bulk of his more than 70-minute address to underscore his domestic achievements and how they are helping mostly blue-collar workers who have felt marginalized, laying out a policy agenda for the 118th divided Congress. House of Representatives, as you know, is now controlled by opposition Republicans and dispelling doubts about his advanced age and vigor for a possible second term. He cited that the 3.4% unemployment rate was at a 50-year record low, especially for black and Hispanic workers. He touted having created 8,000, quote, good-paying manufacturing jobs, the fastest growth in 40 years, unquote. Let's finish the job was a constant refrain in Biden's address, from capping the cost of insulin to $35 per month for every American who needs it, to permanently lowering health care premiums for those enrolled under the Affordable Care Act, to requiring a minimum tax on billionaires, Biden exhorted over and over again, let's finish the job. In one of the most interesting parts of the speech, he went on the attack, accusing Republicans of wanting to cut Social Security and Medicare in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. To that, Biden said, Under the previous administration, the American deficit went up four years in a row. Because those record deficits, no president added more to the national debt in any four years than my predecessor. Nearly 25 percent of the entire national debt that took over 200 years to accumulate was added by just one administration alone, the last one. They're the facts. Check it out. Check it out. 
How did Congress respond to that debt? They did the right thing. They lifted the debt ceiling three times without preconditions or crisis. They paid American bills to prevent an economic disaster in the country. So tonight I'm asking the Congress to follow suit. President Joe Biden speaking, of course, at the State of the Union. Now, for more on the State of the Union and congressional reaction to it, we turn to our regular duo. John Fortier is a political scientist and resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. That's a conservative think tank here in Washington. And Jim Kessler, he is executive vice president for policy at Third Way, a center-left policy group also based in Washington. They join me via Microsoft Teams. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. So let's start with you, John Fortier, to get your reaction to both the delivery and the content of President Biden's State of the Union and reaction to it. Well, I think it sounded like a president who was running for re-election, one who wanted to tout his accomplishments from the last two years and to look ahead and make the case that he's in a good position and America should be behind him. Obviously, Republicans don't agree with all of those things that he laid out, but I think it did sound like a president who you know, had some confidence coming out of the last election and wanted to make that case. It was also a very feisty speech. You used the word feisty. I think that's fair in the sense that he challenged Republicans. There was some calling back from the Republicans in the audience. That stood out. You know, where I think he was weaker, I think there were some cases he made about the economy, which is mixed. There's some very good signs and there's also some real worries. And some of his populist messages might resonate. You know, I think he's trying to lay the groundwork that he's not going to budge on the debt ceiling, that there'll be no compromise, there'll be nothing connected to it, no limitations on spending. I think that's probably an unrealistic position. I think we'll have some deal, not all that Republicans want, but I think that's one area. And the other area where he didn't talk about very much, partly because his numbers are really poor in this area, is the question of immigration. And there you heard Republicans from the crowd often saying the word border, the issues with drugs, crime, immigration, other things are pretty serious. And his numbers are not very good, not only among Republicans, but among the public at large. So what he didn't say in that area, I think, was significant as well. So I Again, a president trying to make the case for himself, but some areas of strength and weakness and some areas of disagreement. So turning to you, Jim Kessler, for your take on whether or not Biden achieved, you know, what he needed to do in this rather raucous speech. I think Biden achieved what he needed to do and a little bit more, thanks in part because of the raucous nature of the Republicans in Congress. Biden is helped in some ways because he is a perpetually underestimated politician. And going into this, it's, you know, is he up for the job? Is he too old? Well, he came out, he was energetic, he was confident, he was optimistic, he was clearly having a good time. I thought his speech was two-thirds bipartisan, unity bringing the country together, and one-third partisan. But the partisan parts of the speech were very partisan and were very sharp. And then, look, he had a rare, clean win, which you don't see very often in politics. And that was the back and forth with the Republican Congress on Social Security and Medicare, where it looked like he just released those two beloved programs as hostages from the debt ceiling negotiations. So the Biden team coming out of this felt very, very good. Some of the flash polls coming out of it showed that people had a very positive reaction to it. If this is indeed the beginning of running for re-election, a good start for the president in the State of the Union address. 
Well, turning back to you, John Fortier, let's pick up a bit on this debt ceiling issue, which is probably one of the first things that needs to be dealt with. It's already being dealt with to the extent that Speaker McCarthy has met with President Biden about this. The Biden administration is saying just as there wasn't any so-called negotiation over it in the previous administration or other administration, there shouldn't really be this holding hostage, the debt ceiling to reduction in budget or certainly not in the Social Security and Medicare, which, as Jim Kessler said, they've seemed to have come to an agreement. We'll see. But what is your take on that, that back and forth? And to what extent that back and forth in the State of the Union will have an impact on negotiations over raising the debt ceiling? Well, I think the president tried to lay out his position on the debt ceiling negotiations and made it clear what his position was. But I don't think it's realistic that we're going to have smooth sailing or that there will be no negotiations or that it will be a completely clean raising of the debt ceiling. While we have done that in COVID times and some emergency times, frequently we do have this negotiation. It is absolutely true that Republicans should not be pushing too far to keep this from happening. Ultimately, not paying our debts, not being able to issue debt for our obligations would be disastrous. On the other hand, President Biden himself in the Senate and President Obama when he was in the Senate voted against debt ceilings. These are controversial matters. We're going to have a big fight sometime this summer, and it really won't get underway until we get very close to the time where we really need to do this. And I don't think Republicans will get all they want out of this, but I expect there will be some sort of limitation of spending in some ways. Maybe it'll be minor, but I don't think this will go through in a clean way. And frankly, I think Republicans have a case to be made. Here we are in a time where at least some of the worries about the economy deal with inflation and the size of our debt and deficits going forward. And for an administration to say, look, we're just going to raise the debt ceiling without any way of dealing with that, I think is not going to be politically palatable on that side as well. So I expect we'll have a big fight about it in June-ish, but the president has laid out his position. I think he's going to have to move off of that to some extent. Jim Kessler, will he have to move off of his position to some extent? Now, let's remind our listeners, you know, raising the debt ceiling is not because of new debts. All it does is allow the U.S. government to pay debts that has already incurred. The consequences of not doing so would be disastrous for this country and for the world economy. You said at these microphones the last time we were here that Biden and minority Senate leader Mitch McConnell would probably get this done without Speaker McCarthy and House Republicans. Do you still stand by that? Yeah, I think I said McConnell, Schumer, and Biden. Right. I, I think it'll be the three of them, and McCarthy will have to basically eat what they agree to in the end. I still feel that way. And part of the reason is, is that, look, the president is saying we're not going to negotiate. Well, we just saw negotiating at the State of the Union, okay? Part of the negotiating is softening up your opponent, bruising them so they have to change their position. Social Security and Medicare were on the table a couple of weeks ago. They're not on the table now. That's 35 cents of every dollar that the federal government spends. Another seven cents is interest on the debt. Mitch McConnell said he wants a larger defense budget. So now you're talking about dealing with maybe 40 cents of every dollar of what the government spends in terms of future negotiations. And a lot of that is things like border security, FBI, DEA agents, things like that. So we're starting to narrow the window of what's going to be negotiated. I agree with John Fortier. The likely of an absolute clean debt ceiling increase, pretty small. But I think the likelihood of one in which there are not really major changes done to the budget have gotten a lot larger in the past week. We'll have more in just a moment. But first, you are listening to Encounter on the Voice of America. Our guests are John Fortier, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute 
and Jim Kessler, from whom you just heard, Executive Vice President for Policy at Third Way. We're discussing President Joe Biden's State of the Union address as he faces divided government for the remainder of his term. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on most of your favorite podcast apps. You may also download the show from the webpage, voaafrica.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter at Carol underscore Castiel or connect with us on Facebook at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Here's a shout out to a new Facebook fan, Lasana Lunor from Monrovia, Liberia. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Well, back to our discussion. So John Fortier, Let's talk very briefly about the Republican response to the State of the Union, and that was given by Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She is now the governor of Arkansas, very young. She talked about her youth, contrasted that with President Biden's advancing age. She talked about a woke mob painting the Democrats as this sort of scary mob. It almost stood in stark contrast to the presentation by President Biden, who painted sort of a America first type of a picture, talking about all the blue collar jobs, the building the, the middle class from the bottom up. But nonetheless, that's just sort of some commentary I've heard. She also contrasted the crazy Democrats to the normal Republicans. Again, some saw some irony in that. What is your take on the rebuttal by the Republicans? Well, I think I say this every state of the union, but the rebuttal is usually hard to do. You don't get as much time and attention. And so it's not as well watched as the president's speech. But look, I think I think one issue that Sarah Huckabee Sanders brought up, which I think is worth noting, has become a very significant issue on the Republican side, and not just with her, but with other governors and other potential presidential candidates like Governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, is that there has been, coming out of COVID, a real sense that Republicans want to push back on what they see as sort of the capture of public schools, public institutions by a very left social agenda. And whether that's dealing with diversity, equity, with issues related to children and sex education, other things like this. This is something that I think Republicans are pushing back on, the, the universities also. And you know that is an issue that is motivating a number of Republicans, and I think will be a significant issue in the presidential primary on the Republican side. Again, Governor DeSantis has made his name in many ways and is both loved on the Republican side for it, but also controversial on the Democratic side, for using the power of the state governments to sort of push back on what they see as kind of a lurch to the left in the culture war that have invaded public schools and other public institutions. So I think that was what I took across from that issue that we didn't hear about at all during the State of the Union, but Republicans do care about very much. Jim Kessler, John Fortier makes some very good points about the culture wars. That was certainly at the heart of Sarah Huckabee Sanders' rebuttal. What did you think of her rebuttal? And does she have a point on these culture wars? Is that going to be a problem, do you think, for Democrats? I do think it's a vulnerability for Democrats. Look, I thought she was very impressive. I didn't agree with a lot of what she said, but I watched her and I thought, very comfortable on camera. She's got a dynamism. She tells a story. If she's the future of the Republican Party, she's in some ways is a lot more sellable than some of the other leaders there. Number two, I thought it was very interesting that neither she nor Joe Biden mentioned the name Donald Trump. They each referred to the previous president or the president. You know, she worked for Donald Trump for over two years. And I thought that was very significant. For Joe Biden, he won't give Donald Trump the dignity of saying his name. But for Sarah Huckabee Sanders, there's clearly some other calculation that she is tied to him in some ways, but she doesn't want to be tied to him. She wants to be seen as independent. And the third thing is, I do believe that Democrats have 
a problem with wokeism, so to speak. Republicans have a problem with comatosism. Like there's some vast area between being overly woke and, you know, the so-called cancel culture and not accepting really any of the changes and making your entire position being about banning books or harping on the problems with transgender children. So I think in a certain sense, both parties are a little bit lost there and trying to find their way. Well, that's an interesting point as well. Comatosism. We're going to remember that, that you coined this word. So over to you, John Fortier. Let's contrast Sarah Huckabee Sanders, if indeed she is the face of a younger, more dynamic Republican party. How about that George Santos? This is the member of Congress from Long Island, Republican, who basically lied his way to victory. Where do you think that's going? Well, more comes out almost every day that George Santos had told little lies, bigger lies, and you know I expect probably more will come out. George Santos is obviously not a strong figure in the Republican Party or his district. He's in a very precarious position. Some have called on both sides of the aisle and from his district for his resignation. It's not clear to me that he will resign, but I also think it's clear that he would never be reelected to this seat. So he may sit for quite a while in this seat, but is kind of persona non grata in both parties. We did see on the floor the reporting at least was that Senator Romney really dressed him down and told him that, you know, he should resign and is a disgrace to the party. That was the big news that came out of the State of the Union. But, you know, this has been an ongoing story and we'll just have to wait and see. I think the two options are that sometime during this two years, he does leave office and resign, or perhaps he just sticks it out as kind of an irrelevant figure and loses or the district moves on to someone else in the next election. Jim Kessler, that was interesting. We saw Senator Mitt Romney, a distinguished Republican senator from Utah, dressing down George Santos, having the gall to, you know, glad hand during the State of the Union and so forth. And every day there's more and more about this person. We don't even know if that's his real name, George Santos. <laughs> there are investigations from Brazil to the U.S. So do you think he may last or do you think he will go? Because it doesn't look like he's going to go of his own volition. I think Speaker McCarthy still <laughs> needs his vote, so he's probably not going to push out. He's a necessary evil right now in the uh, Republican caucus. Imagine in America, a con man getting elected to office. Perish the thought. George Santos in some ways reminds me of the Chinese balloon situation, which is it's a little bit serious and scary and a little bit comical at the <laughs> same time. And I don't think he'll last. There are legal proceedings going against him, and there's a point where the legal system starts indictments and that type of official designations, and then members of Congress, the leadership, will act. What they don't want to do, and it's true, they do need his vote right now, McCarthy needs his vote, is they don't want to create a precedent in which, okay, here's somebody else who lied about something, we need to get rid of him or her. So he's going to be around, he's going to cast his votes, occasionally he'll be the deciding vote on something. He will get in altercations with members and he will be page six fodder in the New York Post, which is a tabloid in New York. He will keep us entertained. Back to you, John Fortier, on some more serious notes here. What do the committees that have convened the Republican-led House committees, whether oversight, judiciary, the weaponization of the federal government subcommittee, what do they tell us so far about the direction of House Republicans and what they wish to accomplish? Well, I think it was easy for Democrats to paint a new Republican majority as just doing a bunch of bomb throwing and not serious oversight. Look, 
oversight by Congress is going to be a mixture of the political and the more serious. And the extremes are when you have Congress in the same party as the president, that they don't do enough to oversee the president. And when they're in the other party, they just throw bombs. But, you know, I think there's a mixture of things. And I would highlight a few. I mean, I think on China, China is an issue. And we barely talked about the Chinese surveillance balloon. But where there is, in some ways, a bipartisan sense that China is much more than a competitor and, and a strategic worry for the United States, and nobody wants to be really on the pro-China side of the aisle, all those differences and some questions will be asked by this committee and by Congress in general about the Biden administration's performance. We don't really know all the details yet. So I think those things will have some resonance across the aisle, but also the parties will do their oversight of this administration. I think on the tech policy issues, again, you have maybe some different reasons from both parties of worrying about tech policy on the outside, but I think Republicans also worried a little bit about our security institutions institutions and others and oversight of tech and what they are doing. So again, it's not all going to be Hunter Biden and the laptop, although there are some significant aspects to that story, which I think probably do need to be looked into. But it is going to be a mixture of things, immigration being one that Republicans are really going to want to shine the light on on this administration, one that the administration really doesn't have a lot of popularity to. There's some issues there. And so I think there's some benefit, even if you're not a Republican, to thinking, well, Congress is going to take a little more serious look at some of the administration policies because one of the branches of Congress is in the other party's hands. So Jim Kessler, as we close, I'd like to get your view on at least what we've seen so far in terms of the committees. I think we've seen Marjorie Taylor Greene, the bomb thrower, I guess would be appropriate from Georgia, who yelled out, you know, liar in the middle of the uh, State of the Union toward Biden. But John makes very good points on China. You have a very distinguished member of Congress, Representative Gallagher, in charge of the China subcommittee. I see the ranking member. They seem to see almost eye to eye on the threat from China. This balloon, which, yes, has its comical aspects, but which was very serious. It caused the cancellation of Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's trip to China recently. What are your thoughts from what we've seen so far and what you expect to occur? The question is whether these committees seem like they're looking out for the public interest or really for a narrow partisan interest. And if you look at the different committees that the Republicans have assigned, they fall in different categories. I think the Committee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government feels like conspiracy theory nonsense. Some other committees, I think there's important things looking at the tech companies. Is it about an axe to grind or really the public interest? And then I do believe the China committee is off to a good start. It has the right leadership there. Krishnamurthy on the Democratic side is very able member. Gallagher, as you noted, is a very able member. The roster on those committees look like serious members. And the hope is, is this will illuminate this debate in America and not be a can you top this? Who's tougher on China? Because the U.S.-China relationship over the next 50 years is going to determine so many things in the world and in America. But, you know, I think the test there is, is it public interest or is it partisan interest? And each committee falls on a different part of the spectrum. Anything you want to add, John, before we conclude? Well, we didn't talk that much about Donald Trump. I still think he's lingering in the background. And of course, once we start the Republican primaries with a little more oomph as we get later in the year, that will become more significant. But you know, there will be a debate in the Republican Party as to whether he, who still has some good strength in the Republican Party, or someone else, perhaps Ron DeSantis, will be their leader. And I think that will color a lot of the debate in Congress and our politics going forward once we get into that later in the year. So over to you, Jim, for any thoughts 
with regard to the elephant in the room, Donald Trump, and uh, the Democratic primaries. What do you think about the new sequence that the Democrats are proposing to forget Iowa caucuses and replace that with, I believe, it's South Carolina? I'll start with the Republicans. I think Donald Trump will be the nominee, and I'll just leave it at that. I love the new roster for Democrats. South Carolina is a great place to start. It has a large African-American voting population, particularly in the Democratic primary. African-Americans are the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. They're also the most moderating force of the Democratic Party. Often we start out in Iowa and in New Hampshire, but mostly Iowa, with the most liberal candidates winning. And then once we get to South Carolina, which the last few cycles has been number four, that's when the moderate candidate starts winning because African-Americans tend to vote for pragmatic moderate candidates. I'm glad to see South Carolina move from fourth to first. All right. On that note, that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guests as always, John Fortier, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and Jim Kessler, Executive Vice President for Policy at Third Way. As always, thanks for a terrific conversation. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on the Voice of America. Mm-hmm.